Chapter Forty of Esther Waters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Esther Waters by George Moore. Chapter Forty. The magistrate, of course, sent the case for trial, and the thirty pounds which William had promised to give to Esther went to pay for the defence. There seemed at first some hope that the prosecution would not be able to prove its case, but fresh evidence connecting Sarah with the abstraction of the plate was forthcoming, and in the end it was thought advisable that the plea of not guilty should be withdrawn. The efforts of counsel were therefore directed towards a mitigation of sentence. Counsel called Esther and William for the purpose of proving the excellent character that the prisoner had hitherto borne. Counsel spoke of the evil influence into which the prisoner had fallen, and urged that she had no intention of actually stealing the plate. Tempted by promises, she had been persuaded to pledge the plate in order to back a horse, which she had been told was certain to win. If that horse had won, the plate would have been redeemed and returned to its proper place in the owner's house, and the prisoner would have been able to marry him. Possibly the marriage on which the prisoner had set her heart would have turned out more unfortunate for the prisoner than the present proceedings. Counsel had not words strong enough to stigmatize the character of a man who, having induced a girl to imperil her liberty for his own vile ends, was cowardly enough to abandon her in the hour of her deepest distress. Counsel drew attention to the trusting nature of the prisoner, who had not only pledged her employer's plate at his base instigation, but had likewise been foolish enough to confide the pawn-ticket to his keeping. Such was the prisoner's story, and he submitted that it bore on the face of it the stamp of truth. A very sad story, but one full of simple, foolish, trusting humanity and having regard to the excellent character the prisoner had borne counsel hoped that his lordship would see his way to dealing leniently with her his lordship whose gallantries had been prolonged over half a century and whose betting transactions were matters of public comment pursed up his ancient lips and fixed his dead glassy eyes on the prisoner he said he regretted that he could not take the same view of the prisoner's character as learned counsel had done. The police had made every effort to apprehend the man Evans, who, according to the prisoner's story, was the principal culprit. But the efforts of the police had been unavailing. They had, however, found traces of the man Evans, who undoubtedly did exist and need not be considered to be a near relative of our friend Mrs. Harris. And the little joke provoked some amusement in the court. Learned counsel settled their ropes becomingly, and leant forward to listen. They were in for a humorous speech, and the prisoner would get off with a light sentence. But the grim smile waxed duller, 
and it was clear that lordship was determined to make the law a terror to evildoers. Lordship drew attention to the fact that during the course of their investigations the police had discovered that the prisoner had been living for some considerable time with the man Evans, during which time several robberies had been effected. There was no evidence, it was true, to connect the prisoner with these robberies. The prisoner had left the man Evans and had obtained a situation in the house of her present employers. When the characters she had received from her former employers were being examined, she had accounted for the years she had spent with the man Evans by saying that she had been staying with the Latches, the publicans who had given evidence in her favour. It had also come to the knowledge of the police that the man Evans used to frequent the King's Head, that was the house owned by the Latches. It was probable that she had made there the acquaintance of the man Evans. The prisoner had referred her employers to the Latches, who had lent their sanction to the falsehood regarding the year she was supposed to have spent with them, but which she had really spent in cohabitation with a notorious thief. Here Lordship indulged in severe remarks against those who enabled not fully irreproachable characters to obtain situations by false pretenses, a very common habit, and one attended with great danger to society, one which society would do well to take precautions to defend itself against. The plate, his lordship remarked, was said to have been pawned, but there was nothing to show that it had been pawned, the prisoner's explanation being that she had given the pawn ticket to the man Evans. She could not tell where she had pawned the plate, her tale being that she and the man Evans had gone down to Whitechapel together and pawned it in the Mile End Road, but she did not know the number of the pawnbrokers, nor could she give any indications as to its whereabouts, beyond the mere fact that it was in the Mile End Road she could say nothing. All the pawnbrokers in the Mile End Road had been searched, but no plate answering to the description furnished by the prosecution could be found. Learned counsel had endeavoured to show that it had been in a measure unpremeditated, that it was the result of a passing but irresistible temptation. Learned counsel had endeavoured to introduce some element of romance into the case. He had described the theft as the outcome of the prisoner's desire of marriage but lordship could not find such purity of motive in the prisoner's crime. There was nothing to show that there was any thought of marriage in the prisoner's mind. The crime was the result not of any desire of marriage, but rather the result of vicious passion, concubinage. Regarding the plea that the crime was unpremeditated, it was only necessary to point out that it had been committed for a distinct purpose and had been carried out in conjunction with an accomplished thief. There is now only one more point which I wish to refer to, and that is the plea that the prisoner did not intend to steal the plate, but only to obtain money upon it to enable her and the partner in her guilt to back a horse for a race which they believed to be. His lordship was about to say a certainty for him, 
he stopped himself however in time to be to be which they believed him to be capable of winning the race in question is i think called the caesar witch and the name of the horse lordship had lost three hundred on ben jonson if my memory serves me right here lordship fumbled amid papers yes the name is as i thought ben jonson now the learned counsel for the defence suggested that if the horse had won the plate would have been redeemed and restored to its proper place in the pantry cupboards this i venture to point out is a mere hypothesis the money might have been again used for the purpose of gambling i confess that i do not see why we should condone the prisoner's offence because it was committed for the sake of obtaining money for gambling purposes indeed it seems to me a reason for dealing heavily with the offence the vice among the poorer classes is largely on the increase and it seems to me that it is the duty of all in authority to condemn rather than to condone the evil and to use every effort to stamp it out for my part i fail to perceive any romantic element in the vice of gambling it springs from the desire to obtain wealth without work in other words without payment work whether in the past or the present is the natural payment for wealth and any wealth that is obtained without work is in a measure a fraud committed upon the community poverty despair idleness and every other vice springs from gambling as naturally and in the same profusion as weeds from barren land drink too is gambling's firmest ally at this moment a certain dryness in his lordship's throat reminded him of the pint of excellent claret that lordship always drank with his lunch and the thought enabled lordship to roll out some excellent invective against the evils of beer and spirits and lordship's losses on the horse whose name he could hardly recall helped to a forcible illustration of the theory that drink and gambling mutually uphold and enforce each other when the news that ben jonson had broken down at the bushes came in lordship had drunk a magnum of champagne and memory of this champagne inspired a telling description of the sinking feeling consequent on the loss of a wager and the natural inclination of a man to turn to drink to counteract it drink and gambling are growing social evils in a great measure they are circumstantial and only require absolute legislation to stamp them out almost entirely this was not the first case of the kind that had come before him it was one of many but it was a typical case presenting all the familiar features of the vice of which he had therefore spoken at unusual length such cases were on the increase and if they continued to increase the powers of the law would have to be strengthened but even as the law stood at present betting-houses public-houses in which betting was carried on were illegal and it was the duty of the police to leave no means untried to unearth the offenders and bring them to justice 
Lordship then glanced at the trembling woman in the dock. He condemned her to eighteen months' hard labour, and gathering up the papers on the desk, dismissed her for ever from his mind. The court adjourned for lunch, and Esther and William edged their way out of the crowd of lawyers and their clerks. Neither spoke for some time. William was much exercised by his lordship's remarks on betting public-houses, and his advice that the police should increase their vigilance and leave no means untried to uproot that which was the curse and the ruin of the lower classes. It was the old story, one law for the rich, another for the poor. William did not seek to probe the question any further. This examination seemed to him to have exhausted it, and he remembered after all that the hypocritical judge had said how difficult it would be to escape detection. When he was caught he would be fined a hundred pounds, and probably lose his license. What would he do then? He did not confine his fears to Esther. She had promised to say no more about the betting, but she had not changed her opinion. She was one of those stubborn ones who would rather die than admit they were wrong. Then he wondered what she thought of his lordship's speech. Esther was thinking of the thin gruel Sarah would have to eat, the plank bed on which she would have to sleep, and the miserable future that awaited her when she should be released from jail. It was a bright winter's day. The city folk were walking rapidly, tightly buttoned up in topcoats, and in a windy sky a flock of pigeons floated on straightened wings above the telegraph wires. Fleet Street was full of journalists going to luncheon bars and various eating-houses. Their hurry and animation were remarkable, and Esther noticed how laggard was William's walk by comparison, how his clothes hung loose about him, and the sharp air was at work on his lungs, making him cough. She asked him to button himself up more closely. "'Is not that old John's wife?' Esther said. "'Yes, that's her,' said William. "'She'd have seen us if that cove hadn't given her the shilling. Lord, I didn't think they was as badly off as that. Did you ever see such rags, and that thick leg wrapped up in that awful stocking?' The morning had been full of sadness, and Mrs. Randall's wandering rags had seemed to Esther like a foreboding. She grew frightened, as the cattle do in the fields when the sky darkens and the storm draws near. She suddenly remembered Mrs. Barfield, and she heard it telling her of the unhappiness that she had seen come from betting. Where was Mrs. Barfield? Should she ever see her again? Mrs. Barfield was dead. Miss May was forced to live abroad for the sake of her health. All that time of long ago was over and done with. Some words that Mrs. Barfield had said came back to her. She had never quite understood them, but she had never quite forgotten them. They seemed to chime through her life. "'My girl,' Mrs. Barfield had said, I'm more than twenty years older than you, and I assure you that time has passed like a dream. Life is nothing. We must think of what comes after. 
cheer up old girl eighteen months is a long while but it ain't a lifetime she'll get through it all right and when she comes out we'll try to see what we can do for her william's voice startled esther from the depth of a dream she looked at him vaguely and he saw that she had been thinking of something different from what he had suspected i thought it was on account of sarah that you was looking so sad no she said i was not thinking of sarah then taking it for granted that she was thinking of the wickedness of betting his face darkened it was aggravating to have a wife who was always troubling about things that couldn't be helped the first person they saw on entering the bar was old john and he sat in the corner of the bar on a high stool his grey death-like face sunk in the old unstarched shirt collar the thin wrinkled throat was hid with the remains of a cravat it was passed twice round and tied according to the fashions of fifty years ago his boots were broken the trousers a grey dirty brown were torn as high up as the ankle they had been mended and the patches hardly held together the frock coat green with age with huge flaps over the pockets frayed and torn and many sizes too large hung upon his starveling body he seemed very feeble and there was neither light nor expression in his glassy watery eyes eighteen months a devil of a stiff sentence for a first offence said william oh just dropped in charles said you sure to be back you're later than i expected we stopped to have a bit of lunch but you heard what i said she got eighteen months who got eighteen months sarah ah uh, sarah she was trying to die so she got eighteen months what's the matter wake up you're half asleep what will you have to drink a glass of milk if you've got such a thing glass of milk what is it old man not feeling well not very well the fact is i'm starving starving then come into the parlour and have something to eat why didn't you say so before i didn't like to he led the old chap into the parlour and gave him a chair didn't like to tell me that you was as hard up as all that what do you mean you didn't use to mind coming round for half a quid that was tobacco horse but i didn't like coming to ask for food excuse me i'm too weak to speak much when old john had eaten william asked how it was that things had gone so badly with him i've had terrible bad luck lately can't get on a winner nohow i have backed horses that has been tried to win with two stone more on their backs than they had to carry but just because i was on them they didn't win i don't know how many half-crowns i've had on first favourites then i tried the second favourites 
but they gave way to outsiders or the first favourites when I took to backing them. Stack's tips and Ketley's omens was all the same as far as I was concerned. It's a poor business when you're out of luck. It is giving way to fancy that does for the backers. The bookmaker's advantage is that he bets on principle and not on fancy. Old John told how unlucky he had been in business. He had been dismissed from his employment in the restaurant, not from any fault of his own. He'd done his work well. But they don't like old waiters. There's always a lot of young Germans about, and customers said, I smelt bad. I suppose it was my clothes and want of convenience at home for keeping oneself tidy. We've been so hard up to pay the three and sixpence rent which we owed that the black coat and waitskit had to go to the pawn shop. So even if I did meet with a job in the exhibition places where they ain't so particular about your age, I should not be able to take it. It is terrible to think that I should have to come to this and after having worked round the table this forty years, fifty pounds a year, and all found and accustomed always to a big footman and page-boy under me. But there's plenty more like me. It's a poor game. You're well out of it. I suppose the end of it will be the workhouse. I'm pretty well wore out, and... The old man's voice died away. He made no allusion to his wife. His dislike to speak of her was part and parcel of his dislike to speak of his private affairs. The conversation then turned on Sarah. The severity of the sentence was alluded to, and William spoke of how the judge's remarks would put the police on watch, and how difficult it would be to continue his betting business without being found out. "'There's no doubt that it is most unfortunate,' said old John. "'The only thing for you to do is to be very particular about your introductions.' and to refuse to bet with all who haven't been properly introduced. Or to give up betting altogether, said Esther. Give up betting altogether, William answered, his face flustered, and he gradually worked himself into a passion. I give you a good ome, don't I? You want for nothing, do you? Well, that being so, I think you might keep your nose out of your husband's business. There's plenty of prayer meetings where you can go preaching if you like. William would have said a good deal more, but his anger brought on a fit of coughing. Esther looked at him contemptuously, and without answering she walked into the bar. That's a bad cough of yours, said old John. "'Yes,' said Williams, and he drank a little water to pass it off. "'I must say the doctor about it. It makes one that irritable. The missus is in a pretty temper, ain't she?' 
Old John did not reply. It was not his habit to notice domestic differences of opinion, especially those in which women had a share. Queer cattle that he knew nothing about. The men talked for a long time regarding the danger the judge's remark had brought the house into, and they considered all the circumstances of the case. Allusion was made to the injustice of the law, which allowed the rich and forbade the poor to bet. Anecdotes were related, but nothing they said threw new light on the matter in hand. And when old John rose to go, William summoned up the situation in a few words. "'Bet I must if I'm to get my living. The only thing I can do is to be careful not to bet with strangers.' i don't see how they can do nothing to you if your makes that your principle and sticks to it said old john and he put on the huge rimmed greasy hat three sizes too large for him looking in his square-cut tattered frock coat as queer a specimen of humanity as you would be likely to meet with in a day's walk if you make that your principle and sticks to it thought william but practice and principle are never reduced to perfect agreement one is always marauding the other's territory nevertheless for several months principle distinctly held the upper hand william refused over and over again to make bets with comparative strangers but the day came when his principle relaxed, and he took the money of a man whom he thought was all right. It was done on the impulse of the moment. But the two half-crowns, wrapped up in the paper, with the name of the horse written on the paper, had hardly gone into the drawer than he felt that he, he had done wrong. He couldn't tell why, but the feeling came across him that he had done wrong in taking the man's money a tall clean-shaven man dressed in broadcloth it was too late to draw back the man had finished his beer and had left the bar which in itself was suspicious three days afterwards between twelve and one just the busiest time when the bar was full of people there came a cry of police an effort was made to hide the betting plant a rush was made for the doors it was all too late. The sergeant and a constable ordered that no one was to leave the house. Other police were outside. The names and addresses of all present were taken down. Search was made, and the packets of money and the betting books were discovered. Then they all had to go to Marlborough Street. End of chapter 40 Read by Lars Rolander